HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And it's a pleasure to meet today with Dr. Adiba Kamabul-Zaman, former Dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at the University of Malaya, Kuala Lumpur, and also President of the International AIDS Society. We are meeting in Montreal, Canada, where the 24th International AIDS Conference is convening in person for the first time since 2018, when it was held in Amsterdam. We'll be talking about the conference, which has historically been the largest gathering of global health policymakers, advocates, activists, and researchers focused on HIV and AIDS. We'll talk about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on research, advocacy, and the equitable provision of HIV services. And we'll also talk about prospects for financing global HIV and AIDS programs in the context of competition for funding for other global health priorities, such as pandemic preparedness and response. Adiba, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Catherine. So congratulations on getting this first in-person conference underway after the 2020 conference in San Francisco and Oakland had to go completely virtual. I wanted to just ask you to start by you know, telling us a little bit, you know, what motivated you to take on this role as president of the IAS during this period? And, you know, the conference theme is, is re-engagement. So I assume that means something to do with people coming back together. But, you know, what are your hopes for the conference and, and this theme of re-engagement more broadly? Sure, sure. Sure. But before I, I answer your question directly, I'd like to point out that this conference is the first in-person as well as hybrid conference that allows, I think right now we have something like 6,000 people who've been logging in on and off from that, that number, you know, I need, I need to double check, but it's still thousands of people able to join us online and in real time. So that's that, impressive. That's a yes, it's been, you know, kudos to, to the team for making this happen. And I, I think it's it's been happening quite seamlessly. Um, I've not heard too many complaints. So so that's um yeah, we're, we're very proud of this. Um what motivated me to become president of the International Aid Society? I've been involved with the IAS for a number of years now. Um 
I think my first involvement was as a plenary speaker in Mexico City back in 2006. 2008? 2008, sorry. Yeah, I should know that. And then um, I was asked to be a scientific chair of the Vienna Conference. And then when we took, then, then I took the conference to Kuala Lumpur and Francoise Maurice mm-hmm. Nussi was the president. And I hosted the science conference there. And I guess... You know, on and off through involvement with the conferences, I got elected on the governing council and a few years ago they said, hey, you know, someone said, Kay, can we nominate you as president? So I've I've been with the IS for a long time and very proud to be an IS member and GC and now president. I think, you know, if I may say so myself, (laughs) I think we're doing a lot of good work. Of course, what most people see are the conferences, but we also run a lot of programs in between the conferences, main missions to educate and to bring people together and, and to amplify the signs around Asia. And so this theme of re-engagement, what are you getting at with that? You know, when, when we're planning the conference, to be honest, we were not expecting this many people to, to be on site. Thankfully, the, the conference venue allows us to expand or, or, or reduce because there was so much uncertainty, right? We, we had no idea what COVID was going to do next. <laughs> but we also know that people couldn't wait to reconnect and re-engage. And the indications came when registrations opened that overwhelmingly more people wanted to be here on site than virtually, even, even though we provide that online facilities. And true enough, I think visa problems notwithstanding, we have as many people here on site. In fact, we could have had more than virtually. So I think that's about the physical re-engagement. And then, of course, the re-engaging in the HIV response. As you've heard from the UNAIDS report, we're faltering. And, and we need to get back on track. And most of us think who work in the HIV field, either as clinicians, researchers, or community leaders, by necessity pivoted to, to COVID-19 because of the urgency and the enormity of the pandemic. But really now I think that COVID-19, it's not going away, it's never going to go away, but it's time to refocus on this other pandemic, HIV. So really bringing people's attention back to, to the core issues. So this meeting, you know, it's always an interesting mix of the researchers, policymakers, you know, different from, from the men, I guess, that you hosted, the scientific yeah. one, you know, really brings in the, yeah. the activists and advocates as well. But, you know, when I've talked with people in the past, you know, they've said really the most exciting of, of the big international conferences are the ones that even where you've got that mix of people, there's some really exciting science and breakthroughs that are, mm-hmm. that are being announced. From your perspective, what are you seeing as the most kind of important recent findings around HIV prevention, treatment, or diagnosis and treatment, you know, that are being discussed here yeah. that people can take away? Sure, sure. And I think, of course, there's a lot of excitement around the long-acting injectables. You know, the, the science is clear. We have um, data, 12-month data from both 083 and 084 uh, in terms of prevention among cisgender. and Those numbers are referring to the, the HPTN trials okay. uh, numbers and real clear efficacy data for both clinical trials and safety data. 
for trans women who are on hormones. And it's clear that cabotegravir injectables will not interfere with transgender women who are on hormones, for, for example. And that it's superior to oral PrEP, oral daily PrEP, to help overcome the problems of adherence. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of excitement about this potential game changer in the field of pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I think what this conference also showcases, like you said, it brings, you know, not just the scientists and clinicians, but many stakeholders. And it was announced at this conference that um, the work that has been going on behind the scenes between the manufacturers of Cabotegravir, Viv, and the medicines patent pool and the voluntary licensing to accelerate implementation of this, particularly in low and middle income countries, as soon as possible. FDA approved oral PrEP 10 years ago and we're seeing very slow uptake and we can't afford to wait another 10 years for injectable preps to get to people where it's needed most. So this partnership, not just between Viv Healthcare and Medicines Patent Pool to allow generic factors to produce this drug, but also a coalition of stakeholders, including Unitaid and, and others, to help with that acceleration of implementation is, is really exciting. Which brings me again back to your to your original question, what, what else is it about this conference? apart from, say, the long-acting injectables. I think, as Dr. Fauci has just very eloquently shared with us in, in his plenary just then, you know, there, there are big implementation gaps that, despite us having the treatment, very effective antiretroviral treatment and very effective prevention tools, we still saw 1.5 million people getting infected last year and 650,000 people dying. So, obviously, there are still huge gaps. And I think... What this conference also brings, fantastic examples from around the world of effective programs from PEPFAR-funded programs to international government-funded programs that many of us can learn from. I had the privilege of attending a satellite session that WHO hosted on integrating services And this was about integrating HIV and viral hepatitis services and case studies from Rwanda, which is well on its way to eliminating hepatitis C, hepatitis C with the support of the Clinton Foundation and others. And there was also a super inspiring presentation because this is my own area of interest of antiretroviral as well as substance use treatment scale up in prisons in Ukraine, you know, tens of thousands of people getting onto treatment with the partnership of the Ministry of Justice in Ukraine. And I think this is what is special about this conference. You know, you you otherwise wouldn't know what, what people are doing from around the world that not only inspire, but are models of delivery services that others can emulate. And then I think the third message that's coming out loud and clear is, of course, the U equals U, undetectable equals untransmissible. The, the protest was rather noisy, but I think it's needed. Again, you know, that the science around U equals U has been around for a few years now. It's crucial for, for, for several reasons. One is, of course, that, you know, we must do more to make sure that those effective pills get to people so they can live longer, you know, live a, a healthy, longer life. And then, of course, that 
as it gets to undetectable levels, you don't transmit it to others. So just for our for our listeners, the U equals U is undetectable equals untransmissible. So for individuals who are living with HIV, for public health reasons that you need to get treatment into people. And then of course, together, all this I think is going to be really important to reduce that stigma that's associated with people living with HIV. I think all this come together to help promote that. So I want to focus on the COVID impacts Mm -hmm. on HIV research and services. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the focus within a number of different sessions, you know, on the gap that has emerged in terms of Mm -hmm. number of infections over the past year, more than than certainly we would have hoped to see. Mm -hmm. And and as far as the global goals, I'm assuming that over the course of the pandemic, like most of us, you were more or less at home, engaged by Zoom with with the rest of the world, but, you know, very much focused in Malaysia. On COVID, absolutely. I I happen to chair my hospital's COVID task force and and we virtually turned into a 100% COVID hospital. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a case in point where much of your knowledge and and work was really focused on COVID, but... How really have you seen that diversion of services or did you see a diversion of services for people living with HIV during that period and as we move into an ever new phase of, of the COVID pandemic, what are your concerns or what are you thinking as, as you look at the case of Malaysia, you know, as, mm-hmm. as we see you know, the need to continue to support COVID work while also covering those gaps in, in HIV services? Particularly in the early stages, obviously, you know, attention and and everything else um, shifted completely to COVID-19. But there was always an understanding that we cannot, must not neglect patients with other diseases, HIV, cancer, etc. So if there was, is a silver lining with uh, COVID-19, it forces us to think more creatively putting in telemedicine, ensuring that delivery of antiretroviral therapy and, you know, clean needles and syringes continue to happen. Either hospitals would will, will post treatment and multi-month dispensing, you know, plenty of examples around the world of how that happened, um, which, which I think will continue. There's no need to bring patients in every month just to collect their medications, for example. And how communities also, community leadership in terms of ensuring continuation of not just ARVs, but all the and prevention tools. So I think without a doubt, and there's, there, there's plenty of evidence for that, that services were disrupted, shifts in tension to, to COVID. But also within that, I think the resilience of, of communities ensured that, you know, the disruption wasn't as bad as it could have been. I recently reviewed, you know, so, sort of a few of these studies. And I think when you compare the disruption from COVID-19 compared to disruption to T- disruption for HIV services compared to TB services, actually TB services, where the mortality associated with COVID disruption around TB was much higher. And one can speculate that because the HIV response has been more organized when it comes to community organizations, that the community, I suppose, in a way more ready to take the lead, you know, because 
in rural Africa, communities been leading, you know, the HIV response and testing and delivery of services for many years now. A silver lining from COVID is um, many people have become more familiar with self-testing. WHO issued a guideline on HIV self-testing back in 2019, but the scale-up hasn't been tremendous. The lessons learned from self-testing with COVID, not, not just for healthcare providers, but also the public, I think, have become more comfortable with self-testing. And also the use of digital tools, whether it's for educational purposes or or linkage to care or or even follow-up and telemedicine. So, yes, COVID-19 was horrible and impacted in so, so many ways. But within that, I think there are a lot of lessons that we, we can take away from it that, in fact, there are many things we shouldn't go back to the old ways. Some of the great examples that came about from by necessity, the good things we should continue. I mean, so listening to you talk, it sounds like you know, between the advent of the long-acting injectables, it sounds like people can maybe go for two months mm-hmm. without having to go back to the clinic for prep. Then the greater uptake, it had been in the guidance for a long time, mm-hmm. but the greater uptake of multi-month dispensing, mm-hmm. the greater uptake of community-based dispensing, and now the new report and greater uptake of self-testing. I mean, it sounds like a lot has really happened to almost mm-hmm. decentralize yeah. or at least separate, to some extent, the response to HIV from the, the clinic itself, that yes. people can take a lot of things mm-hmm. on themselves. What, as we think about some of these developments, both on the research side and just on the community engagement side, the Global Fund Replenishment is coming up in September, and uh, there's a funding replenishment associated with that. We know that the World Bank Board, just at the end of June, approved this new financial intermediary fund for pandemic preparedness and response. And so as you look at all these exciting things on the one hand, with the potential to really be game changers around HIV, and then I guess the competition, if you yeah. will, for yeah. funding for HIV and AIDS programs, what are your Concerns. I mean, where do you? Yeah, yeah. Of course, there are concerns, right? And it's not just COVID nineteen that has taken the attention away from from HIV, the funding away from HIV, but it's also everything else that's happening around the world: the war, the economic crises, etc., food security, climate change, etc. I think this is one of the reasons why these AIDS conferences need to continue. We need to bring the attention back to HIV because the tremendous progress that we've made in the last five to 10 years and the huge investments that PEPFAR, the Global Fund and others countries have put into the AIDS response, it would be a shame to see if we backtrack, right? We've made this amazing, amazing progress and the money is there. I'm pretty sure the money is there. It's where governments, particularly for rich governments, where they choose to put it, right? And so I think um, it's without a doubt, you know, health must come first because we've seen that when we ignore the health aspects with COVID-19, that you are going to backslide in the economy as well. You know, at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, if you recall, there were all these debates about is it the economy or is it COVID-19? Do we close or do we open? You know, there's no such thing, right? You have to do both. And and in the case of diseases, we need to continue to 
ensure that we don't have another pandemic and we need to invest in eliminating HIV, TB and malaria and every other disease. Because if we don't, it's also about the next, you know, the young generation who are, we know, getting more at risk from HIV and that has implications in terms of the next generation of people if they continue to get infected, you know, especially young women and girls in, in Africa, for instance. So, well, and so many have been out of school now correct. for a couple of years and experienced mental, mental health, health challenges correct. associated with yeah. being you know, under lockdown and, yeah. and just, you know, all the societal conflict and uncertainty around mm-hmm. the masking and everything mm-hmm. else. I guess we're about a little over halfway through the conference at this point. As you look toward the end of the conference and as people start to wrap up their their panels and their participation and head back to their laboratories or their NGO offices or, or wherever they undertake their work, what are kind of the top messages around re-engagement and around collaboration that, that you hope people will take away and, and really carry with them over the next two years until the next conference? First of all, I hope that the conference has achieved its one of its main aims to rejuvenate and re-inspire people. I think this is the magical thing about AIDS conferences. I personally have felt more rejuvenated, re-inspired, just meeting individuals who have overcome so many constraints in their lives. Um, yesterday, I had the opportunity to meet two young men from Africa, from one from Uganda and the other from Nigeria, who were both were born with, with HIV. They're now in their 20s and are part of the IS youth leadership. And, you know, listening to their stories, how they've overcome everything that life brought to them, having siblings who are living with HIV, and they've risen above all that. And the one from Nigeria is leading a youth group so that other young people in Nigeria wouldn't suffer like him. And the young man from Uganda is now a doctor and, and also doing the same. I mean, I'm, I'm still inspired by that story. And I think the AIDS conferences have that magic to do that, to, to remind us why we're all here doing this work. So I hope that's my main hope because it's easy to kind of burn out and to all these years and get fatigued. And the ability to meet face-to-face again, I've, I've heard it from so many people, that re-engagement with others, with collaborators, that gives you the ability to kind of really get down to business, if, if you like. It's almost impossible with Zoom, right? And of course, thirdly, to meet new people and, and potential collaborators in this space. So really to connect to the humanity our Absolutely. shared humanity Absolutely. in terms of the experience of, of HIV and AIDS, but mm-hmm. you know, also to find new collaborations yeah. and new ways to address this from the different angles. Yeah, not not just sort of from geographic connections, but also interdisciplinary, you know, engagement between scientists, uh, between biomedical scientists and, or basic scientists and clinical science and behavioral science, for example. You know, we were discussing yesterday with some social scientists around mental health, for instance. I think that's what, what is special about the AIDS conferences and the ABCDEF tracks that we have <laughs> that most other science conferences uh, only stick to kind of the basic sciences and the clinical and epi 
work. Yeah. Well, Adiba Kamalusaman, IAS president and professor of medicine and infectious diseases. Congratulations on convening this conference Thank for the 24th you. time and for really getting us re-engaged both in person and, and online with such a large audience. Thank you very much for taking time out of your very busy conference schedule to meet with me. Thank you, Catherine, for giving me the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.